Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your words spoken. We thank you for it written down and to be able to read it and reflect upon it and indeed to have you transform us through it. We pray that you would continue to do that now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every Christian needs to know King David. King David was an extraordinary king. But let me ask you this, have a think about it right now. What do you know about King David? I expect you've heard of his famous battle against Goliath, when as a boy he defeated the lumbering giant of the Philistine army. Even in the media they still love to refer to a David versus Goliath battle between the little guy and the powerful. Or maybe you've come across David in some of the great uh, works of art, whether painted by the masters or wonderfully, famously sculpted by Michelangelo. And the question I want to ask you, ask you to ask yourself is, what more should I know? Now, of course, it's appropriate, no surprise, to ask these questions as we begin our new series today on the the second of the two books of Samuel, a book of the Old Testament before Jesus about the reign of David, wholly given over, in fact, to the reign of David. It's a reign that begins, as we heard read in chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Saul. But our interest in David isn't only locked to Samuel or even to the two books of Samuel, because he's as prominent as Saul in 1 Samuel before this as well. But because David, as God's great king, points us to the reign of Jesus, God's greatest king. In the very first words of the New Testament that we heard read, and no, that wasn't uh, you wondering whether first came second and second came first. Nonetheless, in the reading that we had from Matthew chapter 1, have a look at it if you can, that list of people, the line of descendants that reaches its climax in the Lord Jesus, David is there. And he's not just there, but he's prominent. Uh, as the line is divided into three groups of 14 generations by key figures in God's plan to save a people for his very own self and to bless them. Starting with Abraham, the first 14 lands on David, the second 14 on the exile away from Israel and the third 14 on the arrival of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Let me top and tail it just by reading verse 1 and verse 17 from Matthew 1. Verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Or verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And David being mentioned there, that's certainly not a one-off. David gets mentioned directly 54 times in the New Testament, not to mention the allusions to him and his rule on top of that. Or what about this? When Paul writes to Timothy and gives him a summary of his gospel message of God's good news, what does he say to him? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ 
raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. If Paul wanted to sum up what was so important, what was most important about Jesus, why does he mention his descent from David unless David were pivotal in God's plans? And for us, not just in God's plans then in the past, but for us today in knowing and growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you need to know about King David. And as you do, you'll know better the Lord Jesus. Now, they're not one and the same, of course, and actually, now that we've come to this, and as we get our heads around 2 Samuel by way of introduction today, you can divide uh, 2 Samuel into three parts, two major parts, and then a conclusion that revisits them. And so, chapters 1 to 10 report the rise and glory of David's kingdom. But chapters 11 to 20, the failure and beginning decay of David's reign. Uh, before the concluding chapters in chapters 21 to 24. Chapters 1 to 10 reveal the character and work of God's king, while chapters 11 to 20 reveal that a human king is not enough and that without God's intervention, without a king who is not spoiled by sin before God, the sin we all share God's plans to have a people of his very own under a ruler who rules after his own heart, we would have no hope, no future other than death and judgment. That's why we're reading 2 Samuel, in order to see and know and trust Jesus in all his uniqueness and all his glory. Oh, one last thing which I think it's worth mentioning now, given David's connection to Jesus, as I've already mentioned, and remembering today is as much an introduction to the series as about chapter 1, I want you to remember this Bible reference. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Do you think I should say it's a spoiler alert at this point? I think we'll be okay. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 is the giving of an incredible promise that God makes to David that also ties in with our title and theme for this series, The King We Need. For while David shows us the shape of God's king and how he will rule, he is not the king we need. The king we need will be a descendant of David and is, of course, King Jesus. Now, let's not delay any longer getting into chapter 1 itself, where even as we read the first lines, they're pregnant with significance. And so we read and do have 2 Samuel chapter 1 open, but we also have it on the screen. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David... He fell to the ground to pay him honour. The time is a thousand years before Jesus and a terrible event has befallen God's people Israel. Saul has died in battle 
leading the Israelites against their enemies, the Philistines, where Saul, he was no ordinary man among the Israelites. He was their king. He was their first king, in fact. I feel a bit like we have to say here at the outset of 2 Samuel, previously in the books of Samuel, uh, and as we delve into that, let's be clear, uh, we're discussing the politics of power. You see, God's people Israel had asked God for a king, but they didn't want the sort of king God would choose. They wanted a king like the nations around them, the nations who didn't know God and hadn't been saved by him. You can read all about it in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where even though the Lord God had been their king and ruled them faithfully and saved them from their enemies, their sinful hearts wanted what the nations around them had. That's not to say there wasn't a place for a human king in God's plans, though. Moses, many years before, speaking God's commands, had spoken of when they had a king in Deuteronomy 17. But Saul was chosen by God as the king the people had asked for. It's worth saying, and it's incredibly important, uh, the way God indicated his choice was by getting his prophet, in Saul's case, it was the prophet Samuel, hence the name of these two books, uh, getting the prophet who delivered the word of God to anoint with oil the chosen king of God. What he would do is he'd place some oil on the uh, forehead of the newly anointed king as a sign of God's choice. Saul had that happen in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and David still as a boy in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And because of the way they were chosen, do you know what they would call the king? The anointed one. Did you notice David calling Saul that in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel in verse 14 and verse 16? But the other thing to know here is we have another word for the anointed one in our Bibles. It's the Messiah. Now, while things look good for Israel, at least from their standpoint, with their new king and all in Saul, Saul made the critical mistake of thinking that he had the power of the king without being accountable to the true king over all, the Lord God. You can read the story of the sorry tale in, what, in 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 15. But God's judgment is given on Saul's reign uh, in 1 Samuel 13 from verse 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. God would choose a man after his own heart to replace Saul, the as yet a boy and shepherd David. And it's not, it's not that David was free from sin or that within himself 
He was better than Saul. He, like Saul and like us, he was still a sinner. But as when God chose Noah in his plans, or Abraham in his plans, or Jacob in his plans, God chose to make him a man after his own heart. I guess it's just like you and I, we have no part in choosing who our parents are. In the same way, people like David had no part in choosing their part in God's plans. And at the same time, like living with whomever your parents are, so David had choices about how he would respond to God's choosing. The other thing that really strikes me here is that Saul was still alive when David was chosen. I don't know if you know very much about uh, Middle Eastern kings down through the ages, uh, and, or perhaps you've seen this sort of thing play out in the present day in all sorts of places around the world, but two kings at once for the same nation, that doesn't fly. And what is the time-honoured way of fixing that problem? Well, it's for one of those kings to kill the other. And so if you've read the second half of 1 Samuel, you would have seen how, well, after God had promised he would take the kingdom away from Saul, Saul tried to kill David, even hunted him down, even though they had had quite a good relationship and been involved in each other's lives before then. That's the reason that chapter 1 here opens the way it does, because through Saul's death, the reign of King David begins It's politics, isn't it? (laughs) And politics doesn't have to be a bad thing. Of course, there are politics done badly. But this moment, the inauguration of David's reign, it is a pivotal moment in God's purposes for his people. As he takes the mantle of leadership over Israel with all the expectations that come with that as a king after God's own heart. But there are bad politics too in chapter 1 and it's on the part of the Amalekite. At first sight he seems to have God's measure of things, his clothes are torn and dust is on his head in mourning, he even falls on the ground before the new king as a sign of his devotion and submission as one should before the new king. But as the episode was retold, did you see what was really happening? David did. This man was trying to play politics for his own gain, telling a story to curry favour with David about his own allegiance to David in the hope that he would be rewarded by David. Now, we had a great conversation at home uh, this week as uh, people in our household were reading through uh, to Samuel Uh, And uh, we had a conversation at home because, well, after all, we're all spending a lot of time at home at the moment, aren't we? In this conversation, one member of our family was indignant with David's judgment right here. Uh, Hadn't the Amalekite done what Saul, the Messiah, had commanded him? But the answer is, no, he hadn't. 
Read back to how Saul died in the chapter before, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, and it turns out the Amalekite knew enough to try and get away with his story. But as for his part in it, it is only that, a story. On top of that, David in the chapters before then, he'd had his own chance to kill Saul, two chances in fact, but he didn't. He didn't because he knew he had to wait on the Lord God for Saul's demise and it wasn't for him to take his life. Now you and I can fall in fall victim to the same sin as the Amalekite man here, can't we? It's only all too common. Not being involved with these particular events, of course, but believing lying can pay. Or that taking matters into our own hands pays off. Even when the Lord God has told us otherwise. And it's not that that to do those things is totally irrational either, otherwise we are, why would anyone do them? Lying can pay off. Taking matters into our own hands can pay. But it's only for a limited time. Only in the short term. Our temptation, and in our sinful minds, our temptation is to believe what the circumstances right in front of us suggest, even when they deny God's word and God's promises to us. And life is full of choices like this, of choosing the path of least resistance in the short term, which we'd prefer at the expense of what's best in the middle or long term, or taking the potentially hard decision in the short term for the benefits it will bring in the middle and long term. God calls us when it comes to his promises and our fear or concern of hardship to reject the first and choose the second. In the case of the Amalekite, he is judged by David for his choice, the short-term gain over obedience to God. And loses his life for it. And we too. We too will face our judge. The Messiah. The Lord Jesus. And then. Will we want to take the punishment we deserve ourselves? Or trust in the deliverance for judgment of his cross? And the life-giving resurrection he won that he promises with forgiveness to all who trust in him. Let me say one last thing before we move on, and it's the role David plays in this chapter and the character with which he conducts himself in it that points us to the true role and true character of our Messiah. We've already seen how he judged the Amalekite. David judged the Amalekite before him, asking wise questions, getting to the heart of the matter, making a just decision. God's Messiah, part of his role is to judge and his judgments are just. And then what about 
back in chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Samuel, where David had returned, what did he return from doing? From striking down the Amalekites, where the Amalekites were God's enemies. Hence David's intense questioning of this Amalekite man who lived among Israel before him. Again, David is demonstrating exactly what God's Messiah would do for his people. Saving them from their enemies. Acting as a champion for all the people he represents. Just as Jesus, our champion, would later save us from our enemies of sin and death and judgment. And finally, consider how as Messiah... David grieves over death. From verse 11, Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. I'm not even going to read David's lament on top of that again now, but read it too again for yourself later. Because David grieves for what is lost. He remembers the good that he had had and now feels the grief in his inner being that can be expressed only in weeping and is felt by a pain in your chest that feels like it will never go away. And he grieves, he grieves not just for himself. No, not just for Saul and his son Jonathan either. But he grieves for all Israel, for all God's people, as they together all experience this tragic loss. The loss of the Lord's anointed the loss of the relationships they had or the opportunity to be reconciled in the face of death, before death, the loss of honour to the nation and to their God that the nations around them might think that they have overcome the awesome and merciful plans of God. And it all reminds us of the tyranny of death and that it is right to grieve over death. No matter what anyone says, death is not natural. Do not believe that it is. It is an unnatural and terrible enemy in the midst of our Lord God's plans and purposes. I don't think I have to persuade you though. If you haven't experienced the death of someone you love yet, you have been spared a great sadness. But it's only a matter of time. You can count on it. And for those of us who have, don't you find it extraordinary? And even after all David had been through with Saul, hunted and nearly killed by Saul, that he should grieve so profoundly. He grieves at death as a person after God's own heart grieves at death. As God himself 
grieves over death. As we grieve. Because death does not belong here. But even in the tragedy, how wonderful is it that the, this Messiah's grief points us to the Messiah's grief over death. As the Lord Jesus grieves at the death of any person, at the judgment of even one sinner, but at the same time has turned his authority, his divine power and mercy, turned it into entering our world and humbling himself as a person so that he might be victorious over sin and judgment and death and enter his reign over us as a loving ruler gathering a people to himself and you who trust him and his authority, you are counted among them. The tyranny of death, its days are numbered. Numbered by the Messiah who stands beside us in our grief and has even overruled death itself. Praise him for that. Let's turn to our Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your words written in the Old Testament, your promises given beforehand, that we might see your faithfulness in keeping them, your wonder in taking us, even David, human as he was and sinful as he was, and using him as a gift to us to show us and help us understand and know and grow in loving the Lord Jesus in all of his power and mercy. Help us, we pray, Heavenly Father, to love what he loves, to reject what he rejects, and to grow and know him more and more as we hear your word from 2 Samuel. We pray all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.